we stood there and waited as the line got longer and longer. I think I was 19 in the lineup. And uh, the manager finally had pity on us, let us in 15 minutes early as, uh, as everybody tried to warm up, so made my application. That was the Monday. And then, of course, you all know Tuesday was the... Tuesday was our last day, honey, wasn't it, that we were actually in Chilliwack. We never got off the mountain again. This morning is our first time down off out of our home. We could not, we cleared everything after we had those 40 centimeters of snow, but all we ended up doing on our driveway was creating the most beautiful runway for the freezing rain to fall on. So we had three quarters of an inch of ice all the way down the driveway, the most fantastic bobsled run I have ever built, <laughs> but absolutely impossible to be on uh, with any vehicle. And uh, last night we were still salting uh, so that uh, we could get to church this morning. So uh, what a crazy week. Oh my goodness. Anyway, it's because of all that that I needed this pulpit this morning. You can figure out what that segue meant. You talk to me afterwards. Oh my goodness. We are in a new series on uh, the type, types from the Old Testament, which is going to appear there any moment. Oh, that's the blacks. Are we there yet? Ah, let's go. There we go. Good. It's working. Um, and I'm going to uh, tackle the, the Ark of the Covenant and how that plays into our new Ark of the Covenant, who is Jesus Christ. Uh, the Ark of the Covenant, uh, I preached a sermon on the Ark uh, back, uh, it was about November the 4th. And, and my focus there was slightly different. The ark was still the, the presence of God, but we looked particularly at the holiness of God as it was exemplified in the Ark of the Covenant and how that then became judgment to every human being. And so we did that crazy story where the ark is taken from Israel and uh, ultimately passed around uh, to various people who didn't want it and wherever the ark went, death followed. And we, we saw just Israelites die. We saw foreigners die. We saw priests die. We saw children and families of priests die. And there was just death that followed the ark until finally they couldn't take it anymore. And remember that funny part of the story. They just tied two cattle to a cart, stuck the ark on it, and said, cattle, go, just wherever you're going. They basically said, if this is Jehovah's ark, uh, he can guide the cattle, just get it away. And the cattle just start taking off for the distance and take the ark away. Nobody wanted to touch it anymore. And so we talked about the, the way in which the ark came to represent not only the presence of God, but ultimately his judgment. I want to expand it this morning a little bit because that's only uh, part and parcel of what the ark signified. Uh, the ark was really the center of life to the people of God. It was the center of God's presence 
And everybody recognized that where the ark was, God was. I want to illustrate this in a really peculiar way. One of the things that we find out is that uh, when it comes to making things important, how you put somebody at the center of your life does play out in terms of your commitment and the cost of making that commitment. Deuteronomy 24.5 tells us that if a man is recently married, he must not be sent to war, have any other duty laid on him. For one year, he is to be free to stay at home and bring happiness to the wife he's married. Oh, bring back the Old Testament, some of you are saying right now. That is so cool. Imagine a year of couch potatoing, sanctioned and sanctified by God. The, the, the point of all of that, of course, was that in the union of bringing two people together, God wanted to create a strong bond, and if somebody is going to come into your life and be the center of your life, then it's going to take time to develop the bond. And so God literally says that if there is going to be somebody who is going to be your center and you're going to create life around that person, then you're going to have to forego other responsibilities and duties and you're going to have to concentrate on making that person the center. And so the concept of something being central and then actually changing your behavior, actually changing the structure of your life, that was a very common theme to the people of God. If something was central, then it had to be impacting. And marriage is just one example where God takes that point of view. The construction of the Ark of the Covenant was interesting, of course, as the exact details of how it's to be made are conveyed. We read that it was acacia wood. Acacia wood later on often symbolized humanity. Gold symbolized divinity. And the box was a combination of both. It was gold and wood and gold. And it was made in order to demonstrate the presence of God. The cover also was hammered gold at the ends, as you can see, two cherubim out of hammered gold, one cherub on one, the second on the other, their wings spread upwards, overshadowing the cover as this mercy seat cover is designed, and it's a cover that can be removed, so it is a functional box, and objects can be put in the box. When the tabernacle was set up, it wasn't built the way that you and I would do a foundation nowadays. We start underground. We start with the stuff that isn't seen. Uh, we start in a construction project, putting in all the services and things that, that we're going to need as we build uh, the structure on top of the foundation. And then we go up from there. It's very interesting that when the tabernacle was set up, Moses is told, place the Ark of the Covenant in it, shield the Ark with a curtain, bring in the table, belongs on it, then bring in the lampstand, then set up the lamps. And if you continue to read, ultimately the altar and the courtyard all comes afterwards. So what does that mean? It means 
the arc starts at the center. They start with the center and they build outwards. The Ark of the Covenant is placed, then the table, the curtains, then the outer courtyard ultimately developed. So you start from the center and then you build around it. Again, demonstrating the central function of the box, which is that it is going to provide a place of God's presence. When it was completed, it says, the cloud covered the tent of meeting, the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses can't enter it because the cloud is settled on it, and the glory of the Lord fills the tabernacle. And then it says, in all the travel of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted, then they could travel. If the cloud didn't lift, they didn't travel, and it stayed a cloud, and it was a fire by night, and always this was the symbol of God's presence. So that's the early roots of the ark, how it was set up, what it was to function as, etc., etc. What we want to do this morning is we want to figure out how this plays into what Darren described as a, a type. We have these symbols in the Old Testament, and then how they become fulfilled in the New Testament. The ark, as we know, contained three things. Manna, Aaron's rod, the Ten Commandments. All of those three things ultimately function in the New Testament as demonstrations of Jesus. I'm not going to take too much time on this because I have a feeling Dave, isn't it, Darren? I think he's doing manna, the bread of life. So I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. But ultimately, Jesus is described in John 6, 33, as the bread of life. So he fulfills the place of the manna. Isaiah 42.1 talks about the choosing of a servant, and ultimately Hebrews 5.4-6 says that Christ became our high priest. God laid this on him in the same way that he laid on Aaron and the Levites the role of becoming priests under the old covenant. So Jesus becomes our priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, it says. So Aaron's rod again, a great symbol of the priesthood in the Old Testament. Jesus fulfills that in the New. And then ultimately the Ten Commandments are there. And again, something happens in the New Testament. For instance, most obviously in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you've heard it said you shall not commit adultery. Where would they have heard that? Where does it say that? the Ten Commandments. But now Jesus says, but I say. That's incredible that Jesus steps on a stage. You can understand how angry, angry the priests, the Levites, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, anybody related to the Old Testament is with Jesus when he says, I say, to which instantly people are saying, who are you to say anything that adds to the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments is everything. How can you say anything to that? Darren already answered that last week. The reason Jesus can say that is because he is God. It's his law. And so we often nowadays, as New Testament Christians, we talk about the law of Christ. In fact, I urge you 
not to get too caught up in the Ten Commandments because there are many more that Jesus expounds in the New Testament that are to be our pattern of behavior and understanding. Jesus said, I say that everyone who looks at a woman unless has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus expands, and his right to do so is because he is the great I am. So once again, the law fulfilled by Jesus himself. That brings us ultimately to what these signs were all about. The manna often stood for the fact that God physically took care of his people, that God is a provider, that God is generous, that he loves to bless people, that he takes care of people. Aaron's rod symbolized the fact that God gives spiritual comfort. God had a way for people to approach him. God had a way for people to deal with their sin and their guilt. God had a way to deal with your relationships within your family, within your community, both good relationships and when it all goes sour and it goes bad. And ultimately, the Ten Commandments themselves, the law. This was God's moral perfection. This is how he describes to human beings what holiness is. And all three of those ultimately come to rest in Jesus Christ. That leaves us with one component, and that's the lid, the mercy seat. And the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant fulfilled the function where blood was sprinkled between the wings, and once a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and he would symbolically gather all the sins that had been dealt with over the year and he'd present them to God for judgment. And God would clear the sins of the people one more time because of the blood that was sprinkled on the mercy seat. This series is about what we call types. And I want to be careful that we don't confuse what we mean by types. Uh, the problem is that if we talk about that, um, what does that mean? There are many types of cars. If I say there's lots of types of cars and I ask you what we mean by that, you would start giving me either models, you'd say Ford, Chevy, Honda, Hyundai, Saab, Austin, Morris. You're all going, why is he centering only on English? No, I'm kidding. Those British cars, who even drives them anymore? The other thing you would say to me maybe is things like SUVs, two doors, sedans, station wagons, trucks, right? So if I said types, that's where you would go. But if I say to you, there are types of Christ, types of Christ, that can be a little confusing. How can there be different kinds of Christs? We don't mean that there are different kinds of 
Jesus Christ in the world, the word comes from the Greek word tupas, and it means all those things in the circle around. It's a, a pattern or a fashion. It's about matter and it's about form. It's types and figures. It's an example. Something that is like something else. Ultimately, maybe the best word to use is a mirrored likeness. And so our whole sermon series is on taking something out of the Old Testament and then showing you the mirrored likeness that that thing is to Jesus Christ. Because over and over and over again, the three of us as pastors are going to harp on the fact that Jesus is said to be superior in all aspects to any Old Testament type. Anything in the Old Testament, anything you can do, I can do better. That's the message of Hebrews. Jesus is superior to everything you come up with in the Old Testament that stirs you towards the presence of God. And so as we preach this series to you, we're going to take those common symbols, common concepts, common objects of the Old Testament and say, Jesus is the full representation of that, and he's better, superior. You don't want this, you want that. No matter how fascinated you are by this, this is way better. That's the point of our series. We want to explain to you how it's all better with Jesus. Perhaps one of the best ways to describe what we're doing in our sermon series is to take it in a different direction, and that is to talk about shadow versus substance. It's so much fun when you got little kids and I remember doing this with my three boys. Remember those cold nights where you couldn't read another story, you didn't want to turn on the screen, but you want to do something as a family? Did you ever do the shadow puppet stuff? Do you ever have fun of that? Right? So you get a light. There's my fish, right? There's my German shepherd wiggling his ears. I'm not sure you can see anything there, but you get the idea, right? And, and we would show what shadow can do. The other thing that's so fun with grandchildren now, or back when we had kids, was when you go for a walk and they would see their shadow. And you'd start explaining what a shadow is and, and, and how it's, it's, it's you, or it's a, it's, it's a representation of you, but it's, it's not all of you. It, it's just an image of you. And, and the lower the sun is on the horizon, the bigger your shadow. The higher the sun is the shadow. Fun stuff. And we, and we would teach kids about shadows. And, and I think this is still one of the best ways to grab a hold of what the Old Testament does in terms of explaining God to us and then how Jesus does it better. Shadow and substance. In Hebrews 8, 1-5, it says, Now the main point of what we're saying is this. 
We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty, who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. And right away, the book of Hebrews introduces to us the concept that what is done on earth is a shadow of something that is real in heaven. There, there's an actual substance in the heavenlies, and then there's a shadow that ends up being on earth. And, and it describes to us what shadow and substance are and how they relate to each other. We have a high priest, we're told, who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle, and the priesthood, the Levites. They're the shadow of what's actually happening in heaven. Hang on to that for a bit. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. That's why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see do you make everything according to the pattern shown by you on the mountain. God has the concept of fullness in his head and it's in the heavenlies, and then he conveys to Moses, I want you to build it exactly like this, and this is going to be a very close shadow to what is actually there. That's how he describes it to us. Eden, the Garden of Eden, was the exact substance and representation of God with human beings. The Garden of Eden, before the fall, is substance. The earth, right now, is a shadow. And God says one day he's going to change things. He's going to make it new so that the earth is once again in fullness the actual way that it is supposed to be. Make sense? Eden was that. Once it's tarnished, it becomes shadow. And right now, that's where we are. The substance of worship is described in the book of Hebrews as always being with God. Worship is where God is, and it is at its completion, it's at its perfection with God in the heavenlies. Everything we do down here is a shadow of that. The substance of the atonement, it's with God. Everything in the heavenlies is about the way in which God forgives sins. We have a shadow of that, particularly the Old Testament. The Old Testament breathes to us what it might be like one day to have our sins totally forgiven, but they are not totally forgiven until Jesus comes. I'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. And the substance of fellowship between creator and creation is always with God. This is the perfection. This is the shadow. This is what it's supposed to be like if everything was perfect, this is how it is right now because everything is not perfect. Substance, shadow. 
The curiosity is that the cross, what Jesus accomplishes, the shadow of that is the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark, especially with its mercy seat, with its depiction of animal sacrifices that cover up human sin. That's the shadow of what really happens when Jesus dies for us on the cross and sin is once and for all truly dealt with. The cross is a shadow cast onto the Ark of the Covenant. So shadow and substance, extremely important in terms of understanding what God does. Hebrews 9.15, For this reason Christ is the mediator of the new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. Jesus brings into play the substance of how sin is actually forgiven so that the shadow of the way it used to be is done away with. The shadow ends, the substance takes over. He's the mediator of a new covenant. He's also the priest and mediator of a new agreement between God and human beings. Notice again Hebrews 9, it's necessary then for the copies of heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that is only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. It's hard to read this. It's hard to make sense of it. You have to constantly keep in mind what's going on here. They are describing that everything is real and substantive when Jesus is involved, and when he is not involved, before him, it was just a shadow. And he changes, he makes things solid. He makes things eternal. He makes things real. Let me give you another example of that. In terms of shadow, Animal sacrifices were needed, so blood symbolically withholds God's wrath. It was symbolically a way of God saying, unless there's bloodshed, there can't be any forgiveness of sins. However, he also says, the blood of bulls and oxen never achieved that totally. It was just a cover. In fact, it goes on and says in Hebrews that better blood, it actually says that, better blood is needed to accomplish forgiving sins totally. Animal sacrifices can cover them up, but you need better blood to actually forgive the sin, deal with it, take it away. Shadow said that we needed continual sacrifices the Ark of the Covenant represented an agreement that dealt with ongoing sacrifices. Time and time again, it would play out. The animal would be killed weekly. The weeks would add up to 52. On the final 
Day of Atonement, the high priest symbolically gathers all the sins that have been dealt with, sprinkles it on the mercy seat. God once again says, you're good for now. What Hebrews says is Jesus Christ died once, that his sacrifice is not to be repeated. He's not going to be killed again, over and over and over again. One sacrifice, one time, good forever. Shadow, substance. Also said that judgment was kept at bay by giving the appearance of cleanliness. One of the things that the Old Testament does is it it helps us to understand that even though there's not total forgiveness because that doesn't come till Jesus, God hides the sin. This may be a little bit of a weird analogy, but it's like God puts the sins in a holding tank. You all know how your septic field works? The sins get put in a holding tank and kept there. But it's not taken away, distributed as far as the east is from the west. The septic field doesn't kick in until Jesus comes. They're just held. Another idea would be whitewash. Uh, The idea of just you apply another coat of paint and throw it over something over and over and over and over again just to hide what's there, to hide the stain. But the concept of a totally new fence, that doesn't come until Jesus. One actual inward cleansing. It's outward. Over and over again, the book of Hebrews reminds us it's outward. Jesus does what's inward. There's an actual removal of sin that happens that was never possible under the Old Testament system of law. Jesus actually removes sin. That's why God will not bring up your sin to you when you die. There is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. You're not going to have your life played back to you on the day you die and God categorizing every single one of your sins. They're gone. If you trust Jesus for salvation, they are gone. There's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Forgiveness is complete. Thought I'd have a little fun. Where's the Ark of the Covenant now? Yeah. Actually, Spielberg did some uh, did some research on that, and ultimately came to the conclusion that the Ark of the Covenant was probably in Egypt, and so he built the story around that. If you Google it, you're going to get ten answers at least. The top three are. 
Solomon's temple. It's still there in a secret cavern. Uh, Solomon's temple is, of course, underneath the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem right now, and no side can excavate down there. So that's a great theory. It's down there where nobody can get to it, and uh, it's just in a secret room. The real ark was never put in the second building of Solomon's temple. It disappeared, and we don't really know what happened to it. There were copies made, some think, and so some groups say they have the copy, but they don't want it to be examined. So you get a lot of conspiracy theories by people who say they have something, but they don't want you to examine it because they don't want you to see it and make your own opinion. Solomon's Temple is one place. The west bank of the Jordan River, uh, near the Dead Sea. Some say that uh, there's more caves where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, the Qumran, and maybe the Ark is there. And some say it's in the east part of the Jordan River on Mount Nebo. Anyway, those are the top three. And Steven Spielberg will throw them in there for number four. One of the funny things is, is that now that I'm older than 65, I don't care anymore what you think. It's one of the advantages of age. I say this to my Bible study group all the time, uh, both the one on Tuesday and the one in our home. There are some things that are really difficult, and as, as preachers, we sort of weigh whether we should say out loud what we think about certain things. And some things we just don't, and other things we think we should. Um, then you get to be 65, and you don't care anymore. <laughs> and you just say it. Um, and so that's happened in our group a couple of times, as people have asked me questions, and I'll say things like, I don't think I would have admitted this five years ago, but I'll tell you exactly what I think heaven is like, or I'll tell you exactly uh, what I think about dispensationalists, or I'll tell you exactly what I think about people who still think that Israel are God's people and can do no wrong right now. I'm going to tell you where the Ark of the Covenant is. Well, it doesn't matter except it's curious. But I'm going to tell you where it is. Right? <sighs> yeah. Are you ready? Revelation 11:19. John, in his vision, says, Then God's temple in heaven was opened, so now he's back talking about the substance of what he sees in the Eternals. And within his temple was seen the Ark of the Covenant. The Apocrypha are not terribly reliable, and they have various different verses that talk about what happened to the Ark, including being put in Mount Nebo or buried in a cave. One of the books, I believe it's Maccabees, I'm not exactly sure, could have been Second Maccabees, just has an interesting story of the angel coming down, packing up the contents of the ark, lifting it, taking it back into heaven. 
no longer needed. Jesus is here. It's gone. Considering what it says in Revelation 11.9, that might not be far off in terms of what actually happened. But as somebody so rightly said, what does it really matter? Because the Ark of the Covenant is shadow. The Ark of the Covenant housed the presence of God from time to time. And, and that diminished in the history of Israel during the wanderings in the, the desert. There was that constant cloud and fire. And then after the destruction of the temple the first time, people being put into captivity, the disappearance of the ark, now it, it becomes tied to the temple. They keep some of the same ideas about it. But it disappears. One thing's for sure that Spielberg is wrong. If they ever opened the box, the Holy Spirit would not come whooshing out and kill people. Because God's not in a box. That symbol of his presence is not true now. Jesus is the presence of God forever. This little box that was the center of worship, that helped people to understand through the manna and the rod of Aaron and the Ten Commandments that God was with them, that God had a moral character, that God cared for people and about how they related to him and that priests were needed to stand between him and us, that God nourished us out of the love he has for humanity. Those things are all true. And the mercy seat, which conveyed again that sin is the great distance between God and human beings. And unless there is shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. The shadow of what the Ark of the Covenant stood for becomes gloriously irrelevant in the majesty of he who is the Son, the eternal Son of God, who presents himself with us through his Spirit, and as he says to his disciples, I will never leave you or forsake you. Yea, I will be with you even to the end of the age. And if I don't go, I can't give you my spirit, but I'm giving you my spirit, my counselor, who will be with you forever. Jesus is the substance of what it means to be with God. God with us. The ark, unnecessary. A shadow of what was to come gloriously fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. He is our ark, our covenant, 
He is all that we have and all that we need. I remember after COVID, there were those touching scenes of people that got to be with those they hadn't seen for a long time as air travel resumed. I remember the pictures of families reunited, coming out of the airports and and hugging. And on one level, you can say, but it's 2020, well then, 2022. What's their deal? Everybody's got video chat. What's the big deal? You phone somebody. You Zoom with them. We weren't cut off. Come on. (laughs) To those of you who didn't see people for a long time, you know there is a huge difference between Zoom and putting your arms around somebody and hugging them. Between the everyday reality of being together, laughing together, eating together, enjoying each other's fellowship and company, to be able to reach out and touch and embrace. I'm sorry, Zoom is the shadow. As nice as it was, the substance of being together, priceless. Jesus, God's gift to us so that we would never be alone. Let's bow in prayer. Father, thank you that the ark is this mirrored image of what you had planned for us from eternity past in your son, Jesus Christ. And people saw what was represented there, and they they rejoiced. They had worship. They had sacrifice. They had fellowship. They had presence. But it pales, it dims in comparison to the brightness of the eternal Son of God, who is himself God, the exact representation bodily, He is God incarnate with us, enfleshed with humanity so that God presents himself with us and he is our sacrifice. If we know Jesus as our personal Savior, we are forever forgiven of our sin. If we know Jesus as our priest, then his blood forever removes our sin so that it is not held against us and we are not judged according to our sin. If Jesus is our law, then he's the one that pronounces us clean, gives us his own righteousness and tells us we're okay to stand before the presence of God. Lord Jesus, thank you for your mercy, for your love, for your sacrifice. Thank you for your presence. You are with me, with us, and always will be.
through this and into the age beyond. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.